This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is my friend, Kyle Mills. Kyle is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Vince Flynn's Mitch Rapp series, but he was already an author before that of 14 other novels before taking over the Mitch Rapp series. He's an awesome guy. We had a great conversation and I hope you enjoy his latest novel, which comes out on September 14th. If you like our conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review to help counter some of those big tech algorithms. And now without further ado, Kyle Mills. Yeah. So in Spain, what, what time do they go to dinner there? Aren't they going to dinner like 10 o'clock or are you even, are you in lockdown? What's happening? What's <clears throat> happening out there? No, it's good. Um, all the lockdowns done. Um, but yeah, it's been hot. Like I think it was, it's cooled down today, but it's been over 110. So wow. that makes it even worse. And the, the sun doesn't go down here until like after nine. Yeah. So that's why everybody lives the way they do. You know, you get up really early, you do what you're going to do early, go to bed, go back to bed, take a little nap. And then yeah, happy hour kicks off once it gets dark so you can go outside. And so that's, Nine to ten or ten thirty, and then dinner at ten thirty. And bed. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. You know, I love Spain. Uh, I, can't, I haven't been there, gosh, in a long time, other than landing at an airfield there on the way back from an Iraq deployment. But uh, traveling around Europe back in the in the day, I loved Spain. I mean, there's so much. Just the the topography is so you uh, just diverse, and it's and it's a lot bigger than people think. I uh, you know if I think if they're initially just going to one of the main cities, Madrid or Barcelona or something. But what a beautiful place to spend some time. And and I want to get there, uh, like how you ended up there. Why I'm talking to you in Spain right now. But uh, first off, congratulations on this right here. So is this book the seventh book you've done in uh, in the series in the Mitch Rap series? Uh, yes. Yes. I think it is. Seventh book. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Amazing. And I want to get to this because it's fantastic. Just like everything that you do is. But, uh, for those who don't know you, I want to go, I want to go back a little bit. I want to go back a little bit to, to growing up as a, an FBI brat and, uh, you know, what that, what that was like. And, uh, when you decided to, you wanted to write, which I think was a little later on. If, uh, if I'm not mistaken, but, uh, what was that like growing up as a, as an FBI kid? You know, it was fun. I mean, it, the, it's not quite as hard, I think, as being an army brat because you don't have to move around quite so much. At least I did. You moved, you moved a little bit though, right? Yeah. You know, we did, uh, but I kind of grew up in Oregon and then back to DC. And then my father got stationed in London, became the legal attache to the United Kingdom. And so yeah, just like really fascinating people. I, uh, you know, military people, CIA, FBI, the DEA guys. And so you always got to hang out with them. And then you got to, uh, I don't know, just bang around and listen to all these stories and, and things like that. So it, uh, it, it was, it was really interesting. And, and, um, I, I think obviously kind of informed everything that I did with my writing career. And at some point in there, you meet Tom Clancy along, along the way. What, at what point was that? Uh, you know, it was kind of a strange situation. So Tom was writing, I would have been his second book and the legal attache to the United Kingdom was going to be a main character in it, a major character. in it. And so he wasn't really super famous at this point. I mean, 
Hunt for Red October had done well and everything, but you know, I mean, it was is a one book. He'd, he'd written one book at that point. So, being Tom, he still owned. He still worked at the insurance agency at this point. He wanted to talk to the personally to Leo Attaché. So he called my father and said, if I flew to London, would you meet with me? And my dad was like, I don't know, some guy who writes about submarines. <laughs> how did um, you get your dad's number? Like, did you call the FBI yeah, and say, they, hey, I want to talk to this guy? Like, how does that the work? FBI or if you called the embassy. And they put him through, I guess, to one of my dad's assistants. And he said, yeah, you know, my dad's always been a huge thriller fan. He probably read the book. And uh, so, yeah, so Tom flew over. And I remember my, my father had called home and said, I was this like insurance guy who writes books and <laughs> he seems like he doesn't know anybody in town or anything. So do you mind if we just, can we just make him dinner? So he, he came to dinner and, uh, I had never heard of him. So <laughs> how old are you at this point? Oh, I was probably 19 or something. Okay. And, uh, yeah, he was a super interesting guy. Like it was an incredible intellect and grasp of geopolitics and the military and, all this stuff. He's super impressive. Um, and then my father became, my father's name is Daryl Mills, and he became Dan Murray in the books. Later, I think he eventually became director in the series. And That's awesome. I did not know that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And then, uh, and they became, you know, kind of a lifelong friendship after that. Um, amazing. Amazing. Now, if friends, you were 19, so- when uh, Tom Clancy is working on Red Storm Rising, you are aging quite well, my friend. It, uh, it must be all the, the siestas in, uh, in Spain. I don't yeah, know, something. It must be. Yeah, something but, going yeah. between Jackson Hole and Spain, not a, not a bad gig. <laughs> it's, my, it's my Barbara Walters soft filter I've got on my <laughs> Fantastic. I need, to, I need to talk to my people about getting one of those. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. You get to meet Tom Clancy, and then, and then later you go, to, uh, you go to college, and uh, something happens with Pan Am 103, um, obviously, Lockerbie, Scotland. Uh, yeah. And you're in college at the time. You're just graduating. Right. Um, and, Happened on my, not my graduation dinner night. <sighs> amazing. And your dad is there, and he gets called out to go, go deal with Pan Am yeah. 103? we were out to dinner uh, to, for my graduation. And my, father, they, my parents had given me a briefcase. for I I'd studied economics and and we were having, <laughs> you got the uh, Alex P. Keaton briefcase. Oh, totally. Did, yeah. That's fantastic. <clears throat> Which I wore out in, when I was in banking. Um, and uh, yeah, and my father's assistant came in and said this, the plane had gone down. But at that point, they thought it might just be a, a bit of mechanical. Um, but there was a lot to coordinate um, because Lockerbie is a tiny little town. They have any resources. So... Um, it started to look actually, I think during the dinner that maybe it was not a mechanical. And so, yeah, my, my father finished dinner and off he went and he moved to Lockerbie, um, for months, as I recall, uh, and coordinated the FBI's efforts there and coordinated the, or helped try to bring in resources. Cause obviously he was really connected to, uh, the top people at, uh, you know, MI5 and, Scotland Yard and all those people that Lockerbie, the people, you know, whatever, would you be the sheriff of Lockerbie? Would not be. So (laughs) helped, you know, everybody was kind of working together with the British and the Americans and other European authorities to uh, try to get that cleaned up. But it was, you know, I mean, it was a mess. There were people and debris strewn. 
Sure. Yeah. Now that investigate the story of that investigation is is so amazing. There's a there's a book I have it in the on the shelf here. Uh, I think it's called Lockerview. Uh, I have to find it again, but it's a, it's an incredible book on the investigation and um, everybody that you talk to who was involved in that. I mean, it, it affected them so deeply and so personally um, as they devoted their time, energy, effort, and their lives to uh, to figuring that out for the longest time. And yeah. Uh, yeah, the backstory on that, and then the the future of—I mean, it was just just the whole thing is uh, is is absolutely it's devastating, and uh, and it's an incredible story, obviously. And then, of course, there's the link later to Mitch Rapp to the character, uh, yeah, and, uh, and what uh, an event, obviously, that makes him uh, who he is in the stories. So, what, yeah, what it's a, easy what a crazy to date connection. him, and now it's easy to date him too because he and I are exactly the same age. You're like graduating from college. Yeah, during Phantom 103. Of course, I don't age him, so he's he's aging more gracefully than I do. But um. <laughs> that's right, that, and that's a good one. I think so. I think I'm going to do the same thing. Of course, you know, you got to you got to think about that with a series character. What you're going to do if you're going to go like a Gabriel Alon type thing, and you're going to age in real time, essentially, or like Daniel Silva does, or if you're going to do uh, like Bob Lee Swagger, same thing. Like he's getting up there with and, uh, Stephen Hunter's uh, character. Um, or if you're going to stay age slowly, maybe like some do, uh, yeah. I think I'm gonna go that slowly. And I think James Bond, um, I, I think that he's been 42, I think since the sixties, I think, or Pretty since the fifties. Yeah. It's hard. You know, if you want to, I think you're going to find the same thing, you know, everybody does. And that's, you know, you want to grow the character. And so right. if you age them slowly, you know, you can, they can change. You know, they can get old, their knees can hurt, they can get married, they can, you know, have kids and all that stuff. And I think that's probably pretty workable because my situation, though, I kind of said, you know, I don't think I'll age the character. And, and if decisions are made down the line that somebody else maybe takes over and wants to do that, uh, they certainly can. But uh, for me, um, when Vince died, uh, Mitch stopped aging. I like that. I like that you that you did that, and uh, I think the you know readers go along with that. They can suspend that bit of disbelief um, for a series like this um, that, uh, that maybe they wouldn't for another character that they're not so connected to. Uh, but yeah, I think you, you know, I think it's 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 yeah. I love that you you've done and, that, and, and, it, and you can still so well. yeah, and you can still age a character emotionally. I mean, the yeah. the Mitrap of today is not the same Mitrap I inherited because mm -hmm. stuff has happened to him. You know, so. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's an important part of it, I think, is that because we're all on these lifelong journeys. And if your character remains exactly the same every book, like then that reader is not going along on that journey with the character with just something that stays stagnant, essentially, uh, you know, emotionally, physically, whatever it, it might be. So uh, I think you have to, the character has to develop over time. Like, that's how I feel yeah. about it anyway, because I'm developing, hopefully, for for the better. I I would I hope uh, I take this experience and apply it going forward as wisdom, and I like to do that for the for the characters as well. Um, of course, you can use it the other way for supporting characters for someone who uh, who doesn't. It's maybe a bad guy that does, can't learn from his experience or whatever. So anyway, you can play with it. I love uh, it's, it's well, one of the and I even your this. character. You know, I mean, I, the way I saw Mitch is when I inherited him, he'd gotten a lot worse. You know, I mean, yeah. he'd he'd gotten better, but then his wife was killed. And he got worse. I mean, he become he become pretty angry at that point. Yeah. And then I thought, I I'm going to pull him out of that abyss. You know, I think right. he'd sort of hit rock bottom mm -hmm. to me in the Survivor, and right. uh, then I was I thought well, I'm going to give him a little bit of happiness, and we'll see if he can have a, <laughs> a see what he could do. We could do with that. Yeah. Uh, 
I didn't want him. I didn't want him shooting himself. You know. Yeah, I know. Seriously, it's something you have to think about. Uh, and so I didn't know. So right before this, I wanted to just jump online and I wanted to count how many books that you had before you took over uh, the series. And as I was doing that, um, I found out that you were a PG PJ O'Rourke fan, Holidays in Hell, yeah. uh, which is one of which is one of my favorites. I think I read it uh, maybe sophomore, junior year in high school or something like that. And then uh, then I read I've read a few more of his over over the years. Um, Give War a Chance. I remember reading that one, and that impacted me at a at a, at a very uh, a time when I was very impressionable. Um, and I just uh, he's so unique in the way he writes. And uh, and I had to click on it again to see if he was still writing, and and he is. I haven't I haven't uh, peeked in on any of his work in quite some time, but. Um, I'm going to go pick up the next, uh, the last few books and see how, see how he's progressed over the years, because he's just so fantastic. And in reading those things in the early nineties, late eighties, um, I mean, it was new, it was different for me as a, as a kid yeah. who's 16, 17 years old, uh, starting to read that stuff. Um, and man, I, should, I should probably give it another read before I pass it along to my kids, uh, just to see it's how, it, pretty how it impacted ob- me. It's pretty obnoxious. I wouldn't yeah. call that a <laughs> You might, you definitely might want to redact. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I might have to, I might have to do that. Uh, so after college, you don't think you're going to be a writer after college. You think you're going to go into, into banking and you're going to kind of do a quote unquote normal ish type of, uh, of a thing. So, um, so why did, why, one, why did you want to do that? What drove you into banking? Um, and then what pulled you out of it? Um, you know, not that it's that, a horrible place to be, but you know, it's, well, uh, it's kind of, you know, the, the 80s, when I graduated, um, I guess, what do we, yeah, like 89 or something, yeah. it's kind of what you did. You, went, you, know, you went to business school, you went into finance, and, uh, you know, there, I, I don't know, sort of, the, I, to, to some extent, like my family, it was sort of the expectation that you would do, you would wear a tie and be a professional and make a bunch of money, and not that I really, my parents ever stated that, it, it just... It was just understood that that's the kind of thing you did. And so I did. I, I went work for a bank. I lived in Baltimore. And I found that this entire, I don't know, life that I had sort of planned out for myself, that, that everybody did, it was just, like I said, it was expected, didn't really work for me at all. And uh, I didn't realize, but I, like all my friends were really different than the banking people. They are a lot of artists and kind of free spirits and athletes and things like that. And um, so I had gotten really obsessed with rock climbing in my early years. And I decided I was- What got you into that, by the way? Because you're on the East Coast. You go to what? You go to like Royal Gorge or something like that? Um, Uh, Well, yeah. Uh, I went to West Virginia the first time I did it. But it's something I'd been thinking about forever since I had read an article in, I don't know, some magazine that my- roommate had in college this big think piece about you know uh yosemite and the guys that climb there men and women i guess they could climb there and i just thought it was the most incredible subculture and all this adventure and they traveled the world seeing these amazing places and it was incredibly challenging and um so i went and like drove to west virginia to sort of take climbing lessons from this guide and loved it and kind of became more obsessed with it and ended up moving to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to pursue it. And actually also went to, uh, went to work for a bank there, but there I met, I know, you know, Jackson Hole just has the most incredible people who have no boundaries at all in their lives. So 
that I think indirectly was the thing that that made me think, oh, it'd be really interesting to write a book because all my friends, you know, did all these crazy things. They never, you know, particularly if you're a banker in the nineties, you had I think people put limitations on themselves, you know, right? Because it's the way it is and nobody ever questions why is it that yeah. way? You know, and so when I, so a, an interesting example of that is when I first got there, I was a pretty good climber. So I made friends with a number of professional climbers that we, and we would climb together. We would climb up in the same level. And uh, one of them one day calls me. I'd only known him for a few weeks. He later became one of my best friends. And he said, um, hey, I'm going to Thailand for, I don't know, a few, six months or something. Why don't you come with me? And I'm like, when are you leaving? He said, all right, next week. And I said, well, I can't do that. I have a job. And so <laughs> he said, well, why don't you quit? I'm like, well, you can't quit your job. He's like, well, I have a house there. And, you know, and he said, and then later he called me once and said, hey, me and Leonardo DiCaprio are hanging out. And I've convinced him to pay you $500 a day to come here and work on his movie. I'm like, well, I can't do that. You know, I've got this. And then I, later, I always thought I could have. I easily could have. I could have called and said I could. Oh, so you job. didn't do it. You didn't no, do I it. Did. Didn't make the move yet. No. I, and so I guess the book was a little bit of a baby step in the direction of, you know, you can, you're, you can do what you want. It's your, your, your imagination is limiting you. Uh, Heading towards that freedom. You're looking for yeah. some freedom, it sounds like. Yeah, but you didn't start right with the book. You started with like some some woodworking and some other thing, making furniture. Like, well, like I was you going didn't... to, but my wife, okay. she could put the kibosh on that. <laughs> oh, so you didn't Wyoming. actually do that then? Yeah, we were living in Wyoming and it would have taken up the whole garage and she wasn't seeing parking out in the, like snow. And all okay, that. so she's like, hey, why don't you try something that's a little more, uh, that, that works better with our space and, and, uh, this... and write a book? And this was so long ago, we didn't even have a computer. So oh, no said, way. you could buy a computer and write a book. No way. So you did? Yeah, I did. But it seemed like a stupid idea. But then I realized, yeah, I'm not doing it for a living. But it, it's cool because, you know, it's creative. And I didn't do creative stuff. I was a banker and I was a rock climber. So I thought it'll be fun and I'll learn some new stuff. And uh, that'll be the end of it. You know, my mom will read it, whatever. and. Uh, yeah, so it wasn't really something I was looking to embark on a career. <laughs> so when you decide to go in, do you dive all the way into this first book, or do you kind of do you think about it? Do you put your toe in, uh, then maybe get the computer, then maybe the printer, and then maybe start writing some ideas down? Like, how does that all work out? Because it eventually uh, it you create something called rising phoenix and i remember where i was i remember exactly where i was when i saw that book and i still have it it's in a box i meant to grab it for this but we have like three storage areas here because we're in a rental right now uh, right. But i wanted to hold it up because i still have my first my my copy um because the, the cover still is amazing and still holds up today and i know i've one told you the, that before that is one it's of a the great best cover covers of the history of thrillers. I couldn't believe I got that cover on my first. It's amazing. Yeah, run. no, it's it's a it's a great cover. And uh, that's initially what I saw. I was like, oh, that's an interesting cover. Boom, bang, bought it, read it, loved it. Um, so so what was that process like? Like how long did it take? When did you go all in on it? Or was it a was it a three-year thing, a one-year thing? Like how did that how did that transpire? It was the fastest book I ever read. I think I read wow. it in eight months. Um but I did, now I'm not counting the prep work. So I bought, like literally, I bought, you know, writing 
dummies and say like books like that, a bunch of kind of how to write a novel books. Uh-huh. I mean, I've always been a huge reader, but I never really thought about writing. So um, yeah, I did all that. And then, you know, I had to find my process, which, you know, you know, it's kind of hard. Um, after 20 years, I found it now, but I had tried all these experiments. I remember like laying out all my ideas on the floor and standing on a table so I could see them all at once. That's what I did for my first one. <laughs> yeah, because you can't like hold it in your head. You can't hold yep. an entire novel in your head for a while. You know, after a few years, you kind of learn to compartmentalize it. But super hard flowcharts and all this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I kind of figured out a little bit of my process. It took years to really figure out what I was doing that was wasting my time, but uh, and what what I needed to do that I wasn't doing. But yeah. So your wife, your wife says, right, let's write a book instead of do this furniture thing. And, uh, and so do you, you already have an idea that's been percolating or you buy these books first and then start thinking through some ideas and think, okay, I grew up as an FBI kid. Maybe I'll incorporate some of that. Um, like what, what gave you the, the, the theme for that book? Was it, Hey, what's going on in the world right now? Uh, what interests me? What, uh, what's my background, uh, with the FBI? Uh, how can I combine these things? Like what, what was it for that first, uh, that first writing journey? Uh, you know, I didn't even know what genre I wanted to write, write in because I read really widely and, um, I don't, I've always been a little obnoxious and I think I mean, she might've been her. I, I can't remember who thought of it, but. I had been at a party or something and people were talking about the, this is back in the war on drugs day. It's, yeah. it's prominent now. And uh, I had said, well, the way you could do that is just have the DEA start poisoning the narcotics supply. They'd confiscate them. Then they'd sell them back make a ton of money. And it put an end one way or the other, it put an end to the, the drug war. And obviously I was probably thrown out of the party immediately. And <laughs> I never really thought about it that much again. But then I thought, uh, well, that would be a really interesting idea for a book. And I have all those contacts at the DEA and the FBI to figure out how things would play out. Plus, for me, that's, I like having that grand idea because I'm not, I don't know, I'm not just like the most violently creative guy in the world. I can't, I don't just like, <laughs> amazing ideas that they constantly pop into my head. So for me, it's easier to say, if this happens, what would then happen? And then I have this plodding thought press, well, the people would die. Then the police would have to investigate it. And then, and that's how my books kind of developed. Nice. And, and uh, how long was that from getting that computer until you found an agent? Or how did you do it? I don't even know. I've never asked you that before. Like, how did you, how did you get it published? Yeah. So I, uh, you know, back then just mailed stuff to people. And so I, I finished it and I thought, geez, I think it turned out pretty good. My dad really liked it. He's pretty critical of me. So <laughs> I thought, maybe I should try to get it. It should be fun. It wasn't fun, everybody. You know? um, so I sent out all those things. I was probably 100. And mm-hmm. kind of got all these no's. And, and uh, no one would even read it. You know, nobody even. Because you, back then, you sent it. You didn't send the book. You just sent out this letter, the query letter. It's probably yeah. the same, but you do it on electronically now. Yeah. People were just dying stamp it no and send it back. <laughs> and uh thought god i'd just like to get somebody to read it um and just to tell me it's terrible even it doesn't really matter um and i actually had an agent for on the kind of on the hook he had read some of the pages he wanted more and all this 
But my father had given, it's horrifying, he'd given the manuscript to Tom Clancy. So, because Tom was overstaying at their house and my dad had the manuscript, I had sent it to him. And he's like, here, Tom, why don't you take it and read it? And I thought, oh my God, you did not even know that. <laughs> Hey, and, bold moves, bold adjustments, oh we call it in uh, when you're adjusting <laughs> your scope in sniper school. I was horrified that he would read this thing. I consider Tom, I still do the greatest thriller writer of all time. And I'm like, I was just, oh my God. And then he lost it. So he's moved to Baltimore and lost it. And I thought, thank God. <laughs> And then, unbeknownst to me, I was just like a year later, I kind of give it. I mean, I, like I said, later I got a guy on the hook, but I hadn't done anything with it. And uh, I, uh, I got a call from some New York agent at work. And he said, hey, Kyle, I, I just read your book. I'm Tom Clancy's agent. I think the book's amazing. I'm going to sign you, and we're going to get you a big deal. And then he kind of like hung up. Wow. And I, I sort of thought it was a joke. And I called my dad. And he's like, oh my God, Tom's so excited. He called me like yesterday, but he said I couldn't call you. So the agent called, but he's like, he's so excited that, that he loved this book. And then, yeah, and then I signed a two book deal, which I did not want to do because I didn't know if I had another book in me. Um, but I, it turned out I did. It was great <laughs> turned out you had a few more than that. But a few more than that. Tom told me, oh yeah, you know, Anybody can write one book, but two's really hard. Right. <laughs> and I, I agree on that too. Yeah. Uh, but once you get past two, you, it's smooth sailing. I think you can do 100. <laughs> um, I'm going to keep that in mind later today as I'm working away on five. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But no, seriously, it is, and that was my experience. Two was the most miserable, the second most miserable year I've ever had in my life. Interesting. I tried to quit and they wouldn't let me quit. I tried to give the money back. Um, wow. It was horrible. And then uh, <laughs> I finally did it. I finally finished it. And then three through whatever it's been, 21. Amazing. Amazing. So you, you do that. And then at some point along the way, before you take over the Mitch Rapp series, you get another call from somebody uh, about doing some Robert Ludlum books. And yeah. Three of those along the way. At what point was that? And how did that get to you? How, how, did, how does that call come about? It, it was like random. Out of, I can't even remember. I guess... I'd almost swear they called me and not my agent. I can't remember. Um, maybe they emailed me. I don't know. Um, and uh, they had read a book I'd written called Darkness Falls. So before I wrote the Mitch Rapp stuff, I wrote thrillers, but pretty diverse in, in theme. Like I, it's just kind of whatever I was interested in, whatever I thought I could make a good book out of. So not series characters typically. Darkness Falls was very science-y. And the Ludlum series, there was a Ludlum series that had kind of gone fallow that was really science oriented. And the, the lead uh, character was a, a microbiologist, army microbiologist. And they asked me, they had read that book and they said, we'd love you to do some, you know, kind of resurrect the series. Mm. And I initially said no, because it just seemed like a weird thing to do. Huh. But... Yeah, the series was cool, and it was almost like I could do stuff that was more sci- even more sciencey than my brand maybe would allow. Got it. And I had ideas. Like I'd always wanted to write a zombie book, and I thought I think I could write a zombie book for these guys, and they wouldn't notice. 
Um, <laughs> and so I did. That was the first one I did for them. It was a total zombie book. And uh, I, they loved it. <laughs> um, and it did, yeah, and people seem to really like those. Because they're some of the my favorite books you know, that I've read, actually, or that I've written I wrote for them. Because I no thought, kidding. Yeah, that, that I could explore some really interesting kind of technological themes and oh, with technology moving yeah. as fast as it does. Um, I could get pretty geeky on it. I'm yeah. kind of a science geek anyway, whereas for my series, for Mitch, particularly for Mitch Rapp, you wouldn't want to do too deep, right. deep a dive into you know, the nitty gritties of whatever, and yeah. artificial intelligence or parasites. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So, so you're at like book 14 or so, when you get a call from somebody else, you get a call. Was it Emily Bessler that called you or did they call your agent or how did that, how did you end up with, yeah. uh, this, such an iconic character, Mitch Rapp and being entrusted, uh, with that for a fan base that is obviously, uh, very engaged with that character, um, and, and loves him, loves the series. Um, how do you end up getting that, that call? How does that happen? Well, I got I guess my agent was having, this is after Vince passed away, at lunch with Vince's agent. And I don't know if they were sure if they were going to continue the series at that point. And I think my agent, what did he tell me? He said, if you decide to, to, uh, to continue the series, I can solve all your problems. And... and the guy That said, sounds like agent talk right there. Yeah, totally. That sounds like does. an agent launch in, in, in New York, for sure. And he said, well, how? And he said, Kyle Mills. And the guy, and I guess he said, oh, yeah, okay. Well, let's, let's think about it. So they decided to continue it, I guess. And uh, I wasn't obviously involved in any of these machinations. And they asked me to kind of, you know, give them some ideas about what I would do with it, which is hard. You know, I'd read those books, but I'd read them over course of 15 years or something yeah. and not necessarily in order and all that so i went back and i had read his last book last man but it had been a while ago so i reread that well before we get to that one though like what what happens with that like you had a call from your agent and they're like hey uh are you sitting down or like how, how did that how did that work i mean it's, it's such a such a huge series to take over, such a responsibility, um, uh, especially for someone who's read the books and and uh, is aware of that fan base and uh, and that storyline. Like, how, did you just get a call and they? How did yeah. that happen? Yeah, and they were just yeah. I mean, my agent called and he said, "Would you be interested would you be interested? In, yeah, in doing something like this." And I honestly wasn't sure. So, for all the reasons you just stated, you know, yeah. I mean, it's a big universe to take on. It's a super iconic character that has to be captured. I mean, it's not, those books aren't about creating great plots. They're about that character. And mm -hmm. so you, I mean, you'd be better off like writing a really, like capturing that character and having him do nothing for 450 pages than not capturing him and having to do yeah. like writing the best book ever, right? Right. And so I said, you know, I need to go back and read the last book. I need to kind of review the series as a whole, give me a few weeks. And then, you know, if I think it's something I can do credibly, because, you know, I don't want to infuriate, you know, infuriate tens of millions of people right. uh, or make myself look like an idiot, uh, then maybe I'll talk to this agent or send them some sort of treatment about like where I think it can go. So, you know, I did. I thought <clears throat> I kind of thought about it and thought, yeah, I think I can do this credibly. I'd been a fan for so long, so I understood 
I, you know, my understanding of the character is deep. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not everybody's understanding of the character, but I felt I understood that character probably better than any character I'd ever written because there are so many books. Right. That. So I kind of said where I would go with it. Vince had not left it in a very easy place. And, but then, you know, I kind of told him that it probably wouldn't end up like, like that and that I would probably change my mind a bunch. Yeah. You know how it is, you know, ideas don't and always, shift. great ideas don't look good on the page. You know? Yeah. So, things and things can shift as you research and, and, uh, new ideas come to you and, and all the rest of it and things develop over the course yeah. of the, the, the process. Um, and, uh, and so how, are you still nervous about writing these things in the fan base or, uh, when the first one came out, like how nervous were you or did you compartmentalize it and be like, Hey, this is the, if they love it, great. If they don't, Hey, I gave it, gave it my best shot. Or how did you, how did you deal with that? Uh, just, just knowing <laughs> how invested people were. And you're also, this is also coming out in a time when people, everyone can let you know. It's not like this is coming out in 1985, where if you want to find out what people think, you can, you know, go to a couple magazines here and there and see if there's a letter to the editor and maybe a review in a couple places. No, right. there are going to be thousands of people letting you know directly on Amazon, uh, little comment section and Goodreads and everywhere else. Exactly exactly how they feel about how you've handled this iconic character. So how did you, uh, how did you think about that going into it? Uh, yeah, when I, when I finished that first book, I thought I, like it was my best effort. I took, I mean, I spent a lot of time on the book. I went through and reread the entire series before I started it. Um, you know, I, I tried to really emulate his style every way I could. Um, and I was proud of, of it. Um, but you know, that didn't mean anybody's going to like it, you know, just cause I liked it. So, um, I was really nervous and, uh, you know, kind of willing to step down if everybody hated it. The one thing that was good though is, and I didn't know how this was going to go was I, everybody seemed to be rooting for me. And I thought there was yeah. a possibility. I remember telling my wife, like everybody could be rooting against me, right? Yeah. I don't want the series continued. They think I'm trying to usurp. You know, Vince is the you know, and take on his, his series. So I got a ton of email from people that are like, "Hey, you know, some of them were my fans. Some of them actually picked up my books to see what I did." Mm-hmm. And they were like, we, "We want this series continued so badly. We've lost Vince. We don't want to lose Mitch, and we really want this book to be great." And that was a terrific you know, pool to throw that book into, as opposed yeah. to, we want to hate it and we want to hate you. Yeah. And the book was over. I mean, obviously there were haters, but overwhelmingly it was really, really well received. Oh yeah. And, no, you did uh, a fantastic, fantastic job. Cause I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people that's a huge fan, read them all. Um, and you know, just so, so saddened by Vince's passing and then, uh, finding out that, Hey, the series is going to continue. Uh, Oh, amazing. And, uh, so I was one of those guys that was rooting for you. Uh, and I think that's what I Thanks. saw from my side is that, that most everybody is rooting for you to succeed. And that's, uh, uh, I think that's something that, that, uh, you know, gets lost in the, this age of social media where it's so easy to look at other people's comments about things and everything's so negative And it's just, a, it's a, it's a horrible time. And then, uh, for that sort of a thing, but, um, for whatever reason, 
everything around you and taking on this series was from my perspective anyway, was, was positive and everybody was rooting for you. And then you exceed expectations when that thing hits and, uh, you know, it, and, and you've done it every book since. So just, uh, an incredible job, which is a testament to you as a, as an author and then how much time, energy, effort, and thought you put into the series, uh, and moving it forward, knowing what a responsibility that was. And, uh, and, you know, you've, you've uh, exceeded expectations at, at every turn to include this one. I didn't want to talk about it too much because because uh, it's, it's, it's so great. I don't want to give anything away, uh, especially near the end. Um, so yeah, this one is, is fantastic and, and absolutely love it. Cover is great. Uh, we share the same editor, publisher, publicist now, which is, right. is fantastic, which is so much fun uh, to get to know you over the last few years. Um, yeah. And, uh, and no, I absolutely love that. And I think you would have made I'm trying to picture you as a banker today. Like I'm trying to think sitting behind a, a desk somewhere and I can't do it. Like it's so hard because I only know you in, in, uh, in this stage of, of life. So I'm trying to, I picture you as miserable though, in a suit with that graduation gift briefcase sitting there, uh, all dinged up over the last 30 some years, uh, next to your desk, uh, just dreaming about being on a mountain somewhere. Uh, so it's, it's hard for me to, to visualize you doing anything else. Yeah, it is now for me too. But you know, I don't know. I don't know if you went through that whole. What do they call it? It gives a name like imposter syndrome, and like I, I wrote that book, Rising Phoenix, and it became a national bestseller. And then everybody's, you know, thinks you're a writer. And I kept thinking, oh my god, I'm, I'm just faking all this. I wrote a book <laughs> about writing. But people would ask you, and they'd want you to speak and everything. Yeah. And it was hard. It took me like five books. Before I thought, no, no, I think I do know something about this. I, I am a writer. That's funny. Yeah, I think it was a little different for me because from a very young age, I always thought of myself as a writer, as an author, as a special operator, like, because I wanted to do these things so early and you don't know any better when you're seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. Like, it's just normal. Like, yeah, I'm going to, like, I'm going to be an astronaut, you know, that sort of a thing. It's like, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL and I'm going to write these books. I'm already, like in my head, I'm already a SEAL and I'm already a number one New York Times bestselling author. Like, so I never, so I never had to grapple with that, uh, that part of it, I think because I wanted to do it so young. And because at that young age, I put effort into training to be a SEAL, studying warfare, and reading all these guys growing up, reading all the Clancy's and Nelson DeMille's and David Morell's and AJ Quinnell's and JC Pollock's and Mark's Olden's and all, all those guys that were a huge part of my childhood, uh, just in the pages of those books. Uh, so, so yeah, so I never really had to grapple um, with that, but I understand it because you see it not just in writing, you see it in other things, leadership a lot of times, uh, companies, military, someone is promoted and they feel, feel that. So I've, I've certainly read about that, uh, that syndrome, but uh, you have nothing to worry about because you have, uh, have crushed everything that you've, uh, you've ever done. Uh, and I think, did you meet Vince once? Is that, is that in passing? Like, did you I meet think him somewhere? I might've met in passing, but not really. He, he blurred one of my books. Yeah. And, uh, we might have met but honestly it was so long ago and it would have yeah. he would have been we were both starting out just starting out as before he was you know really famous um but yeah it's uh i, I wish i could have gotten together with them yeah. before he passed away and seen you know talk to him a little bit about particularly the, some of the things that i was confused about in the books yeah. like uh that i kind of had to figure out on my own so right. hopefully i Hopefully I got them right. Yeah, no, no, you've, you've crushed it. Uh, (laughs) I was fortunate enough to get to spend a little time with him at SHOT Show. And I forget the year in in Vegas, he was signing books there. 
and I think it was 2009. I might be off by a year on either side, but it's an industry show in Vegas for guns and weapons and military stuff. And he was signing books and I waited till the very last second, waited till everybody was gone and they shut down this show and it's huge. It's in the Sands Convention Center. So it's gigantic. And when you shut down the show, it's like takes 45 minutes to an hour to get out of this place. So uh, before they shut down, I walked up and, uh, you know, people are looking at guns and all this other stuff. So it's not like authors are the center of attention in these things. So I got to talk to him for a long time and I'll always remember the conversation that we had. And then we got to walk out together. So we had this 45 minute walk out as we're trying to get out of this, this place. And, uh, and I'll, yeah, I'll never, I never, but I, I I almost, I regret telling, I regret not getting a picture because it was right before I had, I didn't think I had an iPhone at the time. I think I saw a Blackberry and it might've had a camera. I don't even remember, but it was before everybody's taking pictures of everything. Uh, it was right. before that time, before the Instagram days and, and all that sort of a thing. So, uh, I regret that I didn't get a picture and, uh, and I did not tell him that I wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to. Oh, you any. didn't really. Well, it was so early. I still had another, so this was 2008, nine, 10, somewhere in there, let's say nine. Um, so I still had a ways to go in the military. Um, so I didn't tell him that. And I just kind of wanted to talk to him about the books and, and all the rest of it and what's going on in the world and, and all that stuff. So, uh, so I didn't tell him I wanted to be an author, um, or, and I didn't get a picture, but I'll, I'll always remember talking to him and walking out of that show and how he treated me. And it was just, uh, it was very special. So very, very cool. But, uh, but the series could not be in, in better hands, uh, with you. So yeah, no, you've, you've done an amazing job. And I also wanted to ask you, so what, what, what did Spain come into the picture here? So we're talking, you're in Spain, I'm in Park City. Usually you're just up the road a few hours away in, uh, in Jackson Hole, but uh, you've been spending the last, how many years have you been spending months in, in Spain? Uh, well, the theory is that I spend a year here and a year in Jackson. So okay. uh, that got a little waylaid by, um, right. by COVID. Yeah. So we couldn't come back. And uh, man, we just... It was quite the adventure because we, uh, our residency was going to expire um, and we couldn't get back. And then we figured out if we drove like uh, three hours through a blizzard, we could get our vaccines because nobody in southern Wyoming wanted them. Uh-huh. And so we did. We got in the car. We got that appointment. We were, my wife was calling like every Walmart in Wyoming. And uh, she finally found one that they said, yeah, we've got them. So we drove through this blizzard, we got the vaccines, and then we made it here, I don't know, like a week or something before our residency expired. Okay. Because um, so, if it expires, you're out of luck for the next year? Or how does that work? Well, we couldn't, you couldn't, Americans couldn't travel to Spain. Mm. So, or Europe, probably any period. But okay. we could because we're legal residents of Spain. So okay. if it had expired, we'd have been locked out and then we'd have lost our ability to renew our residency. So it would have been a bit of a a kind of a big deal. Yeah. So how um, did you initially uh, settle on Spain as the the place you wanted to spend a year? um, Every every other year. You know, we, we, my wife and I both had this really positive reaction to, well, you know, sometimes you have a positive reaction to different places for different reasons, I guess. And like for us, we had them in different cities that we loved. And one of the ones that, well, maybe the only one that we both said, this is the place is Granada, Spain. And I've always wanted to learn to be fluent in a foreign language. It's been sort of, that was sort of one of the things like you wanted to be a writer and a seal. I've always thought, I'd really like to, this is something I'd really like to do one day. And so we first moved here for a year with the idea of improving our Spanish and seeing what it was like. 
we'd spent a lot of time outside the country, but maybe the yeah. four months in South Africa was the oh, longest cool. ever. Oh, wow. So one year, we thought we're going to do a year and see what happens. It might be horrible. Um, it might be great. Turned yeah. out to be great. Yeah. And, then uh, you get used to those siestas, man. Yeah. yeah. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's presents its challenges. Um, but I like those, you know, I mean, I think it's good to stretch yourself and see yeah. new things, hear different perspectives. You know, it's really different. It's a really different culture. Um, you know, everything's, you know, old and weird and yeah. you can't figure anything out. I mean, it's not really weird. It's not, they consider us weird, but like everything you do is kind of a chore when you do it the first time because it doesn't work the same way or whatever. And, I think it's, uh, that is great. Sounds like a great that. place to write, you know, go to a different spot and, and I got to go to a different spot in the house. I can't write here in the office. I have to go to a different spot. I go upstairs. Now we're in a rental. I go to a ping pong table upstairs and bring a chair. Uh, for whatever reason, I have to go to a different space than I do the business side of things just for whatever reason to make that, that switch. Um, but, uh, and leave all the things that beep down here in this, uh, in this office. Um, but, uh, before I let you go this one, where did you get to come up with the idea for the latest novel? Um, and when you're, when you're finishing this one, do you already have the idea where the other one, where the next one's going, or do you take a breath and think things through or how does that work? Well, it kind of depends. So this one was a bit of a, a bit of a disaster. Um, <laughs> a little like when I wrote, I wrote a book once it was kind of about nine 11 and I turned it in two weeks before nine 11. Wow. Um, wasn't that bad, but, um, uh, this one what I wanted to do and what I told them I was going to do is kind of a three book arc about the fall of American democracy, um, from within. Huh. Um, <laughs> and interesting. Yeah. So I really was interested in that theory. Like, how do you, how does that happen? You know, cause I mean, all democracies fall, right? Democracy breaks out, not, you know, it, it briefly and then it falls. That's the lesson of history, really. Um, and so how could you're depressing you know, me, Kyle, come on. Oh. Uh, sorry. See, I, it's probably good. I didn't do that, but, um, <laughs> so yeah, you know, I mean, people take power, you know, and I thought, well, you get this really malignant president and he could have people in Congress who can back him. How much, you know, and then over three books, like how would you do it? You know, you can now the internet is an incredible tool for misinformation. And how would you pull that off? Like, how would you? kind of do a quiet coup in the United States and turn it into still a democracy, but more something more like Russia or Iran, mm -hmm. where you know, people will still get a vote, but it doesn't really mean anything, right? The guy that's in power is going to yeah. win 90%. So uh, I did. I wrote that. I wrote that whole first draft. And, uh, and then, um, you know, Trump lost. And there were all of this talk about fraudulent elections and we have the capital insurgency and all this stuff. And it felt like really, I don't know, too, a little too raw, uh, you know, what I had done. Maybe I just yeah. did not feel like this would be something people would want to read about at uh, that point. So, I mean, it's still to some extent about this malignant president, the fact that mm -hmm. Mitch has always worked for presidents that have liked and admired him and, and this president does not like him at all and is feels threatened by both him and Irene Kennedy and is very autocratic. So it still has those elements in it, but it doesn't have this sort of beginning of this long arc 
toward uh, and a liberal uh, democracy. So unfortunate, I was super interested in writing that book and doing the research for it, but um, uh, I don't think I don't think it would work. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we're, we're yeah, some things are pretty timely. Uh, do work and others, other, yeah, you never know. But uh, I think anything you write is going to be going to be fantastic. You've proven that time and time again, and uh, yeah. So before uh, yeah, before we go, I, uh, I'm asking this. Because uh, for for me, I'll, uh, not just for anyone else out there, but uh, uh, advice wise on on writing, um, I know you get this question a lot, but you've had some time to think about it, um, and you've had a, you have a track record of uh, of success that suggests you might have a little bit of wisdom to pass on to the rest of us. But uh, what do you what do you pass along to people who maybe are starting their first? They, they they're thinking about starting a, down this path. They're interested in it. They're readers, uh, and they have a book in there somewhere. What do you uh, what do you tell them? I think the, the biggest piece of advice is finish it. So what I find is that a lot of first-time writers keep changing their mind and they go back and they think they come up with a better idea or they want to polish it. And what they end up doing is spending 10 years not writing a novel. Um, don't mistake writing a novel with editing a novel. You can always fix it later, but finish it first. I mean, I do that all the time where I write a chapter uh, three days later, I think that chapter sucked. Like uh, everything about it sucked. I never go back. You never go back. I've re- you know you've told me that before, and I've tried to take your advice, and I haven't taken your advice yet because uh, I get I get to I have to get to a certain point it. where I don't think like that because I'm like I'm like I, I can't waste bandwidth thinking about that chapter four that I can't get out of my head because I'm concentrating on chapter five, six, seven, or eight or whatever it is. Uh, so I go back and I I, I know I shouldn't do this because almost every author says, don't edit as you go. And I can't help myself. I go back yeah. and I think this adds a ton of time to, to what I'm doing, but I get it to a point, not where it's the finished product, not where it's something I am 100% happy with, but out to a point where I'm 100% happy with moving forward into the next chapter. Uh, that makes well, sense. If it's, so, if it's keeping you up at night, that's bad. But, <laughs> but, have you ever, but then have you ever done that and thought, oh crap, I'm going to throw that whole section of the book out. I haven't had that luxury yet just because there's so much going on with three kids, dog insanity in the other room. I hope to get to that point someday where I have that luxury to be able to just take whole sections out or chapters. But right now, every single word (laughs) counts with everything that's that's going on. Um, But I think that is wise advice because otherwise you can spend your whole life just go editing and changing and overthinking and uh, and undermining essentially the process uh, uh, of getting where you want to you want to go. So I think that's the, you know, the best advice out there is to, to sit down, to finish it, get it done, then go back and then get it to a place where it's not perfect, but it's as good as you can get it without yeah. some maybe professional help or sending it out to some friends for some feedback or whatever it might be. Uh, but don't spend 40 years getting there. Uh, is yeah. the thing I tell people and like, yeah, kind of if different. you spend 40 years on it, it might get better, but it might get better by a degree. Uh, so get it to that point where you're like, this is pretty darn good. And then get after finding that agent, then start editing, then get to, you know, all that sort of a thing. So that's, that's kind of what I, how I look at it. Yeah. I mean, there's a law, definitely a law of diminishing returns yeah. somewhere in there. That's and it. It's, uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard to finish a novel. It's, I mean, I still get that panic feeling sometimes of, oh my God, it's impossible. You know, if you ever think about it, I can, still can't think about a novel in, as one thing. It's better to think of it as a chapter at a time. Like, okay, we're going to be 55 chapters and I did one fifty-fifth of it today. 
If I just do that 55 more times, it'll be That's done. That's it. That's it. Kyle, you would would have made a great SEAL because going through Hell Week uh, or SEAL training in general, people that are like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And let's just take Hell Week as an example. Uh, On Sunday evening, they're like, I cannot make it to Friday. I cannot deal with this till I get to Friday. But yeah, most people that are like, hey, I can make it, I thought to the next evolution, like I can make it through surf torture here and I can get to the obstacle course. Some people were like, you know what? I can get to that next meal. Uh, most people yeah. went meal by meal. I went evolution by evolution. Um, but, uh, but if you think about it in terms of hell week and then all the months after hell week and all the different phases and then seal qualification training, and then your platoon and your workup and all the rest of it. No, you gotta, you gotta take those small bites chapter by chapter, yeah. take buds chapter by chapter, the same way, uh, you write, uh, one of these right here. So I think that is, uh, that is wise advice, my friend. <laughs> Hopefully I mean, it works. It works with everything. So, yeah, uh, I think know, so. Eat the elephant with a, with a spoon. That's it. Yeah. One bite at a time. <laughs> How to eat that elephant <laughs> one bite at a time. Exactly. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me. I know you, you have a, not a siesta now because everybody's waking up and now going to, to dinners now that it's getting a little, a little later, you probably have another hour or so until, uh, until dinner in Spain, but, uh, I always love spending time with you. It's, uh, it's so cool. Hopefully we can do it again in, uh, in yeah. person, hopefully at a, uh, an in-person book signing. Hopefully those are coming back here over the next year or two. Um, yeah. You know, are you going to tour see. for your next one? I think so. I don't think, think it's uh set yet because, uh, you know, everything's so fluid and dynamic these days, but, uh, right. I think the plan is to do an in-person one, but I'm not hundred percent positive yet. I think we're waiting to see what, uh, what happens over you the next know. few months. You never know these days. Yeah. Crazy. Um, but hopefully we'll, uh, we'll meet up again on the road or in Jackson or down here in park city or something. Hopefully so. Hopefully so. We're in Spain. I know. Gosh, I need to get back there. I love Spain. I just want to spend, I want to spend some serious time there. Like I said, because it was so, that was my takeaway from being there all those years ago. I ran with the bulls on my 21st birthday in, uh, oh, really? in Barcelona. Yeah. So you survived. Uh, I made it. Yeah. I made it, made it all the way down to that stadium where you run through the streets and then you get to that. Yeah. I didn't know about that. I just thought you ran through the streets because back then there's no internet. You can't look these things up. Oh, right. uh, so all I knew is the running through the street part. I didn't know that you eventually went down and things bottlenecked uh, into this stadium. And then you come up and they let fresh bulls go and throwing people right and left. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> so doing, doing my, uh, my Hemingway routine, but uh, yeah, I don't think I do it today. I think that was a, that was a one time one, one and done. I think it's not the best idea. It's like rodeo. You know, you could, but it'd be better if you did. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. So the guys from Premier Body Armor gave me these panels right here. And what's really cool about these panels is that they slide into this type of a t-shirt. Yeah, I just stuffed a panel in right there. And uh, yeah, very cool. So you can wear this with a uh, low vis type stuff, like a suit uh, or something like that. But uh, front and back panels, this is the Phoenix uh, panel right here. And what I also like about this is if you're going low vis, uh, it protects that upper thoracic. And if I'm saying that wrong, I'm sure someone will be more than happy to correct me. But uh, back in the day when I was looking into gunshot wounds and shot placement and all that sort of thing, it was really this uh, right here, upper thoracic, where uh, you didn't want to get hit um, with anything. So this is pretty cool. So thank you guys for sending this out. Uh, awesome. Uh, I can see a lot of application for that, but that's cool. But what's even more cool is this. What is it you might ask? Well, it's a premier body armor, armored koozie. And I know that you have always wanted one of these. I certainly have. 
But uh, very cool. Look at that. Keeps your beer cold and protected. So you can do that. And what else? Look at that. They thought of everything. You got a little can opener. So very cool. Awesome. Thank you guys for sending this out. Sincerely appreciate it. Uh, check them out. PremierBodyArmor.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. You can find more about Kyle Mills at kylemills.com and follow along with him on Twitter at Kyle Mills Author. This is the seventh book that he has written in the Mitch Rapp series and the 20th book featuring counterterrorism operative Mitch Rapp. So pick this up September 14th and you can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels and officialjackcar.com is the website. Be sure and leave that five-star rating and review. And until the next time, stay strong out there. Keep fighting. And a special thank you to Schnee's. I've been using Schnee's boots for over a decade now. As you can tell for these ones right here, just my favorites. These are the granites. I think every hunter should have a pair of these in their quiver. But these guys right here, uh, these are the ones that I wear when I'm going into the backcountry and hope to come out heavier than when I went in. So uh, right here, Granite's awesome boot. Absolutely love these. You can see these have been worn quite a bit. These are some of my other favorites right here. So these are the Hunter 2s. These are, I would wear these all day, every day, if I, if I could, but, uh, um, amazing boot, love everything they have going on over there at Schnee's. So be sure to check them out. I have some new boots now. I think I have, uh, 10 pair right now. My wife has a pair, uh, and then I just got a couple new pairs and right here. These are the bear tooths. I'm one of these for a while. So super excited about trying out the bear tooths. That'll happen this summer and fall. And then the Kestrels right here. So those are a couple new pairs that I have in the arsenal that I'm looking forward to checking out here soon. So if you haven't heard of Schnee's, check them out online, check out their story, check out their Instagram, the boots they make in an Italian boot factory. So those are handmade in Italy. The only place you can get them is through Schnee's directly to you. So you're getting more boot for your money and uh, every part of these things. Uh, you can just tell how much care and how much time, energy, and effort goes into these boots right here. And what's also great about Schnee's is that you can go visit them in Bozeman or you can give them a call and tell them about uh, where you're going to hunt, what you're doing, and uh, they can make some recommendations for you right there on the phone. So Schnee's, thank you so much. And I'm going to read this part because you get 10% off. Uh, so I don't want to mess this part up. When you shop at Schnee's, and that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com, make sure you use the promo code JACK21, J-A-C-K-2-1. When you do, you'll save 10% off your pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. These handmade hunting boots usually sell out fast, so grab your pair today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's. Again, that's Schnee's, S-C-H-N-E-E-S dot com and promo code Jack 21. In case you missed it on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original.
Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot. Like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm-hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts. 